0: Today, I'm talking with Paulette Boudreau about her debut literary translation, Boston: My Blissful Winter. It's a fictionalized memoir of the author Alain Briotet, containing a series of twelve short stories reflecting his appointment in Boston during the 1980s as Council General of France. Before we get started, here's the inside scoop on Paulette. Paulette Boudreau earned a B.S. in education from Bridgewater State University an M.A. in French Language and Literature from Middlebury College in Vermont, and a diploma in 20th-century French literature from the Sorbonne University of Paris as a Fulbright Scholar. Paulette taught French and ESL in elementary schools, colleges, and universities in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. In the 80s, she transitioned from education to administration at the French Cultural Services at the French Consulate in Boston. In 1995, she founded PLJ Administrative and Business Solutions, outsourcing administration and project management for small to medium-sized companies. The French government honored Paulette as a chevalier in the Order of Academic Palms in 2010. Paulette is an active member of Rotary International, the Boston-Strasbourg Sister City Association, the Sandwich Arts Alliance, and the Société Francophone de Cape Cod. She currently resides on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Boston, My Blissful Winter is her debut literary translation. To learn more about Paulette Boudreau and her work, visit her website at pauletteboudreau.com. Well, hi Paulette, welcome to Inside Scoop Live.
1: Hi Sherry, thank you for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. Why don't you kick us off by telling us a little bit about the book Boston My Blissful Winter?
1: Well, Boston My Blissful Winter Memories of the 1980s is 12 short stories about a young French banker who's experiencing Boston for the first time. He's an intern in a downtown bank in the 80s, and as he seeks to overcome his solitude, he visits many different places, and Mm -hmm. he mingles with people from different aspects of society. Mm -hmm. For example, he goes to the city's concert halls, jazz clubs, Uh, he goes into businesses, works with businessmen, he goes to different museums, cafes, theaters, Antique shops, he dines in fine restaurants such as the Ritz and local diners such as the Blue Diner. And he rubs elbows with people from different aspects of the society, Brahmins, Mm -hmm. academics, a struggling musician, a librarian, and many others. But throughout the book, the stories and the places are described through very detailed and vivid descriptions of winter. So there are a lot of descriptions and the author does make it come alive.
0: Mm-hmm. I know that the author was a world traveler. What inspired him to write this book a- about Boston in particular?
1: Well, the author, who is Alain Briotet, was the consul General of France in Boston in the 1980s. And he loved Boston so much that instead of staying for three years, which is the term of office for a consul general, he was able to convince his superiors to stay five years. Mm. And when he left in 1990, he went on to Rangoon and became ambassador of Rangoon. And that's where he wrote this book. He wrote it in August of 1994. However, the book wasn't published until 2007. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It took a long time and it wasn't translated till later, which I can tell you about later on in the interview why it took so long. (laughs) Uh, It's a memoir, but it's fictionalized. The 12 stories are fiction. And the reason that he made it fiction, because as you know, there are often liability issues when you write about people who aren't in the public domain.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So he took his characters, and the characters are really composites of the many people that he met and the many people he knew, and he wove them into the stories and into the incidents.
0: So how did you meet the author? I met the
1: author in the 80s when he was at the French consulate, and I was working in the French cultural services at the time, and that's a division of the French consulate. So that's how I met him.
0: Mm, okay. So are you in the book?
1: Uh I think there's a composite of me. My name is in the book, but it's not really who I was. <laughs> so, as I said, it's a composite. Everything is a composite. Even the stories a composite. The incidents and the stories are composites of different incidences, and he kind of combined them together. So, you really, unless you know, he's the only one who knows what's true and what's fiction.
0: Ah, right, right. I've always, right. I, I like fictionalized memoirs because I, I feel like it adds a bit of. You know, just uh, storytelling to to the story. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 That's. I've always found that interesting. Yeah. Now, Boston, my blissful winter is your debut literary translation. How and when did you make the decision to translate the book from French to English?
1: Well, as I mentioned, the book was written in, in 1994, and it was published in French in 2007. And Alain asked me in 2007 if I would translate the book or if I knew anyone who would translate it. Mm -hmm. But at the time, I had started my own business. And of course, there was no way I had either the time or the energy to take on a translation project. Mm -hmm. So throughout the years, we would meet once in a while uh, if he was in Boston or if I was in Paris. Fast forward, and now it's 2014, and I've been retired for a few years. So I asked him, did you ever find someone to translate your book? And he said, no. I said, well, you know, I'd like to try just to keep up with my French language skills. Mm. And he said, well, do the first chapter and send it to me, which I did.
0: And he replied, continue, continue. So that's how it started. (laughs) That's how it started. Did you know what you were getting yourself into?
1: No. (laughs) (laughs) I did not know, and I don't think he knew either, you know. Right. So from that point on, we started working on the book very closely. So I would sit here on the Cape and translate, you know, do one chapter, and I would send it to him, and he'd look at it, and everything was through email. So he would make some comments, and he would, you know, make some changes, and we would go back and forth. And, of course, it not only, you know, for me, I had to be writing in French, to mm. him, because he does understand English, but he prefers to do everything in French. So I was, you know, I was improving my my written skills, absolutely <laughs> in French, not yeah. not only in English. So I would send him a chapter, and it would go back and forth, and we did this uh, quite a bit until. The book was almost finished, and uh, I was at that point when I received a notice from Middlebury College. I have my master's from Middlebury, mm-hmm. and they hold the well-known Bread Loaf Writers' Conference every year. And this particular year, they were having their very first translators' conference. Oh. So I applied for the workshop session, and I submitted a portion of my manuscript, and it was accepted. Well, guess what? All the work that we had done (laughs) was a literal translation, when it should have been a literary translation.
0: Oh, can you tell us the difference? Yes,
1: yes. There are many challenges between the two. And first of all, you have to know who your audience is going to be and who your reader is going to be, who you're translating for. So this book was translated for an American audience in Mm -hmm. American English, for example. If it were translated for uh, an audience in the UK, there are a lot of differences, even in the vocabulary, for example, Mm -hmm. what we call a sweater, they call a jumper. But there are also many different grammatical differences between the two languages. For example, the position of the adjectives or how the verb tenses are translated In French, there's a simple past tense, there's a literal past tense, and the literal past tense doesn't even exist in English. There's a past perfect, et cetera. And one of the very significant differences is the contractions. I would have readers or reviewers or even workshop editors or other translators that were workshopping my work would tell Mm. me, well, this translation is too formal. And I, yeah, I resisted at first. I argued that well, the author is a very formal person, and I'm trying to represent his voice.
0: Right. Well,
1: one of the main things is in French there are no contractions. For example, in English we use many contractions. We'll say I'll, I'll go. They always say I will go.
0: Mm. You know,
1: the literal is I will go. He'll, he will go. So it was always he is going instead of he's going, or there is going to be, there is going to be. I don't know. I do not know. So just to give you some more examples that are probably more specific, this is one of the stories. It's called... La Fête des Rois, which is the Feast of Kings, Mm -hmm. and it's about a French war bride who came to the States with her husband, uh, married an an American soldier, came to live in the States, and now she's been here for quite a while, but they invite the young banker to dinner uh, of the Feast of Kings, which is uh, in January, the Mm -hmm. Epiphany. And I gave this talk to a group of French-speaking people. I had an interview with someone, and it was in French. So as an exercise, I had them read this particular chapter, and I said, tell me how you would translate it. So here are some examples. The the woman, for example, in French, it says, Elle faisait tout à fait américaine. So the literal translation was, she was absolutely American. But literary was, she looked American. She looked American sounds better.
0: Okay, yeah. Uh,
1: Here's another one. Le soufflé était délicieux. Tout le monde en recrit. All right, literally, it, and it's not that the literal is wrong. It's not wrong. You understand what it is, but it's not correct. You know, it right, right. The souffle was delicious. Everyone took some more. So I translated it to the souffle was delicious. Everyone had seconds. Ru-
0: okay, yeah, 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 yeah. So just modernizing it a little one. bit. and Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, so here's another one. This is Madeleine, who's the French war bride, who repris la parole. Elle semblait tout d'un coup devenue plus bavarde. Alright, literally, Madeline took back the word. She seemed to have become a gossip all of a sudden. I wrote it. All of a sudden, Madeline seemed to be more talkative.
0: Oh wow, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so first well, you translated <laughs> it, and then you had to go back and yeah. and rewrite it, kind of. <laughs> R-
1: rewrite it, right? More in in English. Right. Uh, this is a good one. Susie, uh, Susie is the uh, daughter of a neighbor, sugera de me conduire a la place de sa mère, mais cette dernière insista. Susie suggested driving me in the place of her mother, but this last one insisted, uh, and I wrote, Susie offered to drive me instead. But her mother insisted. Yeah. So those are just examples to give you a difference, you know, an idea of the difference between literal and literary translation.
0: Yeah, yeah. I wish I took a year of French in in junior high. That was so long ago. Uh-huh. I don't remember a word. But I love, the, <laughs> I love the French language, just the way it sounds. I love it. Yeah, so, yeah. But yeah, there's a big difference between the, the two. So right, that, yeah, right. Yeah. It's a lot of work. Wow. So is there a certain process you use or a, a method to how you translate? I have a process. I didn't
1: have a pro- the process there was we just did it and went back and forth and we didn't. Neither of us knew what we were doing. Mm-hmm. So now what I do first of all is I just read the entire book in French to decide whether or not I want to translate it. And then I, I'll take one section at a time and I'll sit down for two hours, maybe not more than two hours. And sometimes I get carried away; it's more than two hours. Mm-hmm. And, and I translate it. And I use references. I use a French dictionary and English dictionary. And of course now they're all electronic, so that makes it a lot easier. Yeah. I use a thesaurus. I use apps. I use translation apps that called computer-assisted translation that give you uh, the use of a word in different circumstances and different situations that mm. help you decide how to use it and, and also give you the sense that the same word can be used in many different ways. Mm-hmm. And then, after I've done that section, I put it aside. I put it aside for quite a while, sometimes two weeks, sometimes maybe a month. And then, I go back to it without referring to the French at all, and I go back to it and I read it out loud. Now, this oh. is a very this is very helpful because reading it out loud, you can hear things and you recognize things. You say, "Oh, that doesn't sound right," you know? and you change it. And the only time I go back to the French is now. Sometimes it just doesn't sound right, and other times it doesn't even make sense when I <laughs> translate it. Doesn't make sense, so I go back to the French to see how did I misinterpret this? What did I do here that I misinterpreted? So that's basically the process. Uh-huh. And then it's done, you know, it's, I have readers, people who look at it and critique it. And also I have uh, other translators workshop, it, there are groups of translators and we'll get together and critique each other's work. And, mm-hmm. and that's very helpful also.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. So the author who speaks Well, you said he spoke some English, but was he able to read the English version?
1: He was able to read the English version and he actually he read the first version which he had worked on. I don't think he read the complete edited version because between the first version that we worked on together when I went to breadloaf and the final version, it was edited many, many different times. Yeah. He may have read certain sections, but um, there is one section that I know he read. And it was sort of interesting, you know, working with him in this way to translate it. So there's one story about, um, it's called Lowell and Jack Kerouac. You know, Jack Kerouac came from Lowell. And so it was very important for me to maintain a good relationship with the author Mm -hmm. and also with my publisher, and I'll tell you about her a little bit later. But there was one incident in the, the whole process about publishing the book. First of all, after doing all the translating, there was finding the publisher. And once I had the publisher, that was another long process also. But at one point, I had worked with the publisher and also with an editor. She was a small company and outsourced a lot of the work. Mm-hmm. Some people I knew had reread it and helped made suggestions and made changes. And then I worked with the editor that she had hired to work with me. And I worked through the whole manuscript with her. And finally, the publisher had the final manuscript, or what we thought was the final
0: manuscript, Mm -hmm.
1: and read through it. And then I get a call from her, and she said, I'm thinking of dropping the chapter on Lowell and Jack Kerouac. And I thought, oh my gosh. (laughs) I held my breath. I knew that this was the author's favorite chapter. (laughs) Oh no! (laughs) I and I thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? You know, so I for I was quiet for a while, and I said, well, what exactly is it about that chapter? Why do you want to drop it? She says, well, I find it very confusing. She said, there are too many characters, and it's very confusing that. So I thought about I said, well, you know, you're right. It is confusing. There are all, a lot of characters, and there are a lot of different verb tenses uh, because it, it's told from the protagonist from the first person, and then he relates things in the past, and then he goes into the past perfect, and mm-hmm. there's even a dream sequence that's in there. So I said, you're right. It is very confusing, especially because of all of the tenses. I said, let me work on it for a while. Uh, let me do something with it. So, I decided to drop the dream sequence. Mm. So, in the process, I had to tell the author, I had to tell Alain that I was dropping the. And he said, Oh, no, no, that really happened. I said, Well, remember. (laughs) I said, this is supposed to be fiction, you know, (laughs) even if it really happened. He said, I had that dream. I said, but it's fiction, and it doesn't add to the story. Mm -hmm. So he was okay with that. So I made some changes, some significant changes, and I sent it back to her, and she called me back and (laughs) said, well, that's a lot better, but... I'm still thinking of dropping it. And I thought, oh gosh. (laughs) So at that point I said, let me think about this. So I had a friend, I had knew someone who was a freelance editor uh, through a French group that I belonged to. Mm -hmm. And I also through another literary group, I knew someone who taught creative writing. So I asked them, I said, would you, take a look at this chapter the story and and give me your your input so they did and both of them said yeah you have to you know you have to make some changes here and the freelance editor made some changes you know she was great so i sent that to the publisher well the publisher loved it so much that she hired the freelance editor, her name is Ellen Albanese, she hired her to go back and go through the whole manuscript and edit it another time. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it ended up everyone was happy. The author was happy. I was happy. (laughs) The publisher was happy. The editor was, everyone was happy, and it worked out fine. (laughs) And one extra thing, the surprising thing is, now that the book is published and people are reading it, one of the chapters that I get the most comments about are the Lowell and the Jack Kerouac, <laughs>
0: <chapter>. ah. <laughs> it's, it's,
1: especially from people who lived in or near uh, Lowell, because there are a lot of details about the city. Uh, there are a lot of, and they write back and they say, Oh, this is what happened to that school. This is what happened to that church. Or this street is named after that priest that you mentioned. And, and they get so excited about it. Yeah. So, uh, We all agree that it's a good thing we didn't drop that chapter.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So you kind of had, you were like kind of running interference (laughs) the whole time. Yes. 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 Keep,
1: Absolutely,
0: keep Absolutely. you on your toes. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Right, <laughs> and it was it was important to be you know to maintain a, a good relationship with both the author and the publisher. So I was kind of you know it was that was a challenge. That right, was one of the biggest challenges I
0: think. Yeah, right. Yeah. So how did you find your publisher?
1: Well, while I was at Dreadlow. Uh, My workshop leader had suggested that I join the American Literary Translators Association, which I did. And they have a massive database of publishers Mm. who who specialize in publishing translated books. And the database also lists the genre and uh, the type of publishing, you know, how many pages and the language and everything. So I took that database and I wrote query letters Mm. and sent out uh, between 20 and 30 query letters, which I had to maintain on a spreadsheet to keep track of, you know, the responses that I got right. and the rejections. So anyone, you know, if you've interviewed authors or anything, and am them this question or you know that you get a lot of rejections unless right. you're a genius <laughs> before you get a, an acceptance. So I got many rejections, but two people did respond to me. And one of them called, actually called me, mm. and she kept calling and she was very persistent. So I was interested and I looked up her website and I found out that she was a Rotarian. She belonged to Rotary International. Well, I belonged to Rotary International mm. also. So I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And I was supposed to meet her at a conference in Atlanta. She's out of Georgia. Uh And I got sick and she had a commitment, couldn't stay for the whole time. So we never met. But then what happened is... I had to stop, this was by around 2014, I had to stop and not work on it for about two and a half years because I took on a commitment with Rotary International as an aide to a district governor. And that was a major commitment that took about two and a half years. So I said, I'm just going to put this aside. Mm. And I told her, you know, because she was a Rotarian, she understood, I said, I'm just going to put this aside for a couple of years until I finish this commitment. Well, meanwhile, you know, in the back of my mind was, well, she's just a small publisher. I'm not, you know, I'm going to try and get a bigger publisher than a known publisher. (laughs) So, uh, by the way, her name is Lucinda Clark, and she's the owner of PRA Publishing Company out of Georgia.
0: So, um, I love Lucinda. Oh,
1: yes, yes. Yeah. What happened was uh, after two and a half years, I was ready to start looking for another publisher, Mm
0: -hmm. but
1: before I even got started, I got a phone call from Lucinda, and I thought, oh my gosh, (laughs) so she (laughs) is very persistent, and at that point, I said, all right, we talked and negotiated a contract, because at that point, I just didn't feel like starting the whole process over again, and looking for another publisher. So, What happened as a result, we have become very good friends (laughs) through the whole process. She was a very good communicator. Um, She had people uh, working for her. very attention to a lot of details, as you can see with that Kerouac story. Mm -hmm. One of the main things that I was very impressed with was that even before the book was fully edited, you know, in, in that whole process, she had me prepare a publicity plan. And this was pretty extensive, and for both of us would use it. Well, the book was published in September of 2020, so it's not even a year yet. Mm-hmm. And, well, the pandemic is one reason, but we haven't gone through. I, I have many more areas to hear um publicizing the book and trying to get it out there. And that was really impressive to me. But uh, during the pandemic, we just spoke every week. Uh, We had a Zoom meeting every week, and we would talk about the progress of marketing the book and publicizing it. And so I ended up being very, very pleased with my small publisher, PRA Publishing. And she's not that small. No, (laughs) no. No, not that small. But it, it worked out to be very, very, very good
0: yeah wow wow so from the time you were asked to do the translation from the author to the yeah. final publishing date in 2020 september how long was that right
1: it was a total of five years but as i, as I mentioned i took two and a half years
0: off oh where yeah i didn't yeah. do anything
1: at all yeah well, that, yeah that's so i would say it It was about two and a half years. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, that's not too bad at all. Yeah, considering all all you had to do. It wasn't just a simple, I "I wrote this book, let's publish it. No,
1: it was, you know. Right, and it wasn't my full-time job. You know, I was retired and I had other things. And we traveled and I have other commitments. I have other organizations I belong to that I'm involved in. So, yeah, so it worked out, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Is there one thing you learned uh, through the process that you wish you had known beforehand
1: Well, we talked about the difference between literal and literary translation, but there was something else during the whole publishing process, looking for a publisher. I found out everything I'm learning is by trial and error of going to alter conferences or talking to other translators. Mm -hmm. I found out that unlike an author, my daughter is an author. And like an author who writes a whole manuscript, sends out a query letter with the whole manuscript, translators should only send out 20 to 30 pages in their query letter mm. and not the whole manuscript. And then get a contract with the publisher before they finish the translation.
0: Why is that?
1: Well, because you're hired to do a job, you're hired to do a translation of a book that's already written in another language. Mm. And I've heard publishers say that, well, sometimes, you know, looking at the query letter with the synopsis, you know, of the book and whether the rights are available uh, and the first 30 pages will give them an idea whether they want to publish the book and then they will establish a contract Mm -hmm. with the translator. So the contract is between the translator and the publisher.
0: Okay, yeah. I
1: don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And then, but I've also heard publishers say, well, sometimes the first 30 pages are great, but... They like to see the first 30 pages and then a couple pages from the middle of the book and a couple pages from the end of the book just to get a sense of whether or not the book is translated well or, you know, so you don't lose your momentum as you go through the whole
0: book. Right, right. You didn't front load the first chapter with all the good stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Right. 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 So will you do more translations?
1: Uh, Yes, I'd like to. I have translated a poem and a short story from English to French Mm. uh, and that was a challenge, (laughs) but going forward I think I'll stick to the French to English and since then I've also worked on two other books and one is a memoir written by the same author and the other is a series of letters written by an American graduate student in 1958 and letters that she sent to Simone de Beauvoir. And I'm always looking. Yeah, you know, not looking, but if something comes up, I look into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to translate stories I can relate to. if There's something that I can relate to, or if I have a connection with someone, or if I know the author, or some kind of a connection. For example, the letters that I'm working on now, translated and sent to Simon de Beauvoir, Well, that French interview that I did, the interviewer is the daughter of the woman who wrote those letters. So mm. that's how I got to know about that. So there's that connection that makes it a little bit more interesting for me.
0: Right, yeah. right. Well and that makes sense. You're gonna spend a, a good chunk of your time on it. Right. You've got to yeah, be able to connect to it too. Yeah.
1: Well what happens once the book is translated and published, then the copyright of the English version is mine. Oh, so it's and it can be and there are some some translations that are so different. <laughs> you know, you can have two books that are translated by two different people and they're entirely different. For, an example can be Madame Bovary that was made into a movie mm-hmm. and that was translated many, many years ago. But then the recent translation is completely different. So each one of those belongs to the person who translated it. the copyright okay. belongs to those people. Oh, so it's like their story, their creation. It's not their full creation, but their adaptation is their creation.
0: Uh, right, yeah, that's interesting how that works. Yeah. So, where can readers learn more about Boston My Blissful Winter?
1: So, I have a website, and there's a lot of information on that website. And You can just put my name, com, or bostonmyblissfulwinter.com, and it'll take you to the same website. And on the website, you'll find extensive bios of both the author and my bio, and there are some recorded excerpts of four different chapters on it, oh, and nice. reviews of the book. Different, Yeah, I've got all the reviews I have. There's a Kirkus review on there. There's a Read of Views review, and uh, as a matter of fact, I just got a five-star rating on that, which is I was very pleased about. Uh, there's a list of events, both past and upcoming events, and many of them are recorded, so you can listen to them. There's a community access TV interview, and that one has a different twist because the interviewers, both, there were two interviewers, both of them had already read the book, so there was a lot of focus on each chapter and analyzing each chapter and their impressions of each chapter, so oh, that nice. was kind of different. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and you can view them on the website because they're all, you know, there's links to all the interviews. Some of have done at the uh, library, public library, etc. A um, few libraries, and those have a um, PowerPoint, and in the PowerPoint there are pictures of places in each chapter, and I give a synopsis of each story as I'm going through it. Mm-hmm. So you can view those and get a better sense of the book and, and what is included in the book. And as I mentioned before, one of the recordings is with a French audience and that's in French and that was interesting because that's the only one I actually did in French and that was a little challenging. Yeah. And also where you can purchase the book. So if you want a signed copy of the book, if you want me to sign the copy as the translator, you would just contact me at paulettecoudreau at Mm gmail.com or you can purchase them in the usual venues like Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And there are a lot of Massachusetts places that you can purchase it. This uh, Labor Day weekend, Uh, My daughter is an author. She has Mm -hmm. three books that she published. And she's coming and we sell our books together. So that's a lot of fun. Oh, how fun, yeah.
0: Yeah,
1: we'll be at the Falmouth Rotary Craft Fair on Labor Day weekend. And then there are other bookstores in Massachusetts, uh, such as Eight Cousins in Falmouth, the Market Street Bookstore in Mashpee, Booksmith in Brookline, Massachusetts. And in Worcester, there's the Tidepool Bookshop. Or you can request the book at your local library. And if, you know, enough people request it, then they, if your book club wants to read it, then the library will usually get it for your book club and they'll they'll put it in the library. But Mm -hmm. it could be in lots of of libraries also. Mm,
0: Nice. Well, Paulette, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure learning more about you and your work.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me and uh, for giving me the opportunity to share my experience with you and your audience.
0: Thank you for joining me today for my interview with Paulette Boudreau about her literary translation, Boston, My Blissful Winter. For more information about Paulette and her works, visit her website at pauletteboudreau.com. And be sure to check out our other interviews on insidescooplive.com.